Hey, good morning, Sycamore View family. Can we put our hands together again for our worship leaders today? That was wonderful. And thank you, Kip, for your leadership in that. That was so moving. I have a friend, he loves birds. He says he geeks out about birds. Like, he reads books about them. He, like, goes to zoos and, like, stares at them. Like, he knows all different kinds of birds. He was in his backyard one day, and this bird that was blue appeared on top of his fence, and he couldn't figure out what kind of bird it was. He thought for a minute it may be a blue jay, but it was too small to be a blue jay. And then he thought it was some other kind of blue bird, but it didn't have the right texture of blue, so he couldn't figure out. And then it hit him. This is a, this is a pet blue parakeet. This is somebody's pet that got out of the cage and came into his backyard and landed on his fence. Now, in his backyard, every day, he had sparrows that were back there. And when this blue parakeet arrived, those sparrows just took off. They were scared to death of blue, blue parakeet. And then they would come out, and the moment the parakeet would begin to move or make any of its weird sounds, like all the sparrows would take off. They would hide in bushes, fly into trees. And about an hour went by, and then the sparrows were like, maybe this isn't so bad after all. Like, maybe this is one of our friends. So these these sparrows that had been free all their lives now became friends with something that had been caged but had now been set free. There are those passages in the Bible that are like blue parakeet type passages. We're using the word cage, may be too strong of a word, but most of our lives, like there were parameters around certain verses or certain issues, and then it got free. And we weren't really sure what to do with the freedom and then we realize maybe we shouldn't have been afraid of that all along. It's crazy how as humans we can sometimes be looking at the same thing and come to different conclusions. Sometimes we can look at the same sign and it makes sense. Sometimes we look at the same sign and it's confusing. Let me just show you a few. I had a little fun with this over the last couple of weeks. There's sometimes like, imagine driving up to a sign and you see this. Now, all of you in your lives, you have that person in your life that's like a passenger seat driver. Am I right? You know who that person is. Can you imagine pulling up to this sign with that person trying to figure out what you're supposed to do? And I love on that sign that just says, good luck. Or could you imagine pulling up to this stop sign right here? Or you pull up to it and, and you just don't know what to do. There's no place you're supposed to go. And some of you are such rule followers, you would stay right there where you are. Because you know there's some camera that's going to catch and, you know, send you in the mail some, some ticket, right? Or maybe you pull up to something like this one right here. We have a student driver in our family. I can't imagine pulling up to a light that had this with Truett at the wheel, trying to figure out exactly how to turn left, how to make a U-turn, how to go straight, how to turn right. Or maybe this one right here, where I, I don't know, I just had to show this one. Like I... I, if you pull up to that one, make a U-turn and just get out of the way, right? And, and maybe, maybe, you know, you pull up to this one. And, I, and, you know, when you're in smaller towns, you pull up to signs like this. And when you didn't have MapQuest or you didn't have, uh, you know, some kind of Google Maps on your phone, like it could be a little confusing. I mean, now you're having to try to figure out which way's north and south and east and west. And one more sign for you. Can, look, I, I just I love it. It's honest. It's just happening for the next eight years. Like, we all like when the government will just, like, hey, just tell us the truth. Eight years, okay. Now we know, right? And there are times where we can look at a sign and universally, I think we know what it means. 
Universally, globally, if you were to see a stop sign, I think all around the world they have some version of this and everybody knows what it means, you stop. Now, maybe it means you have a rolling stop, you stop for a second, two seconds, but I think everybody sees a stop sign, you know what to do with the stop sign. You see a no U-turn sign, I think all around the world, like they would know when you see that. Now, you may try to break, you may break the law because it's easier, but you know what it means. All around the world, you come to a stoplight where there's a, especially the red and the green, you know red is stop, green is go. I don't think there's a country in the world that has automobiles that said, you know what, we're going to do the opposite. Green's going to mean stop, red's going to mean, like I think you pull up to that, you know what it means. And we can stay there just for a moment because I want to talk just for a moment about cultural awareness. I was a part of a leadership event in Dallas the last couple of days, and there was one speaker, and he runs this leadership consulting business, and he has people from 13 different countries who work for him. And he brought all people from those 13 countries together for this one big event, because they had seen each other on Zoom and talked on the phone, but they had never been in the same space. And they're all out in this huge backyard where there's a fire going and they're, they're bringing out the food. And he overheard, everybody overheard this one person who looked at Stacy. And she knew Stacy from Zoom calls and phone calls. And she looked at Stacy and she said, Stacy, I noticed that you have gained weight. And she said it with joy in her voice. And, and like all these other conversations are happening, but they heard it. And this woman, instead of taking Stacy's silence as, maybe I said something wrong, she said it louder, thinking Stacy didn't hear her. Stacy, I just want you to know, I've noticed that you have gained weight. And later the leader pulled, pulled that woman aside and said, what you did with Stacy, like you crossed the line, like you insulted her. And the woman was shocked that she had insulted her. This was a woman he had hired from West Africa who grew up her entire life around people who were malnourished. Skin and bones was the norm. And if you gained weight, it was a sign of prosperity. It was a sign of blessing. It was a sign maybe of, of divine favor. So she thought she was giving a compliment. Now, none of you in here are from West Africa, so don't go around trying to do that to somebody this week, all right? Like, I really meant it as a compliment. But culturally, there are ways we see things differently, interpret things differently. So let's not even take the whole Bible. Let's just take the New Testament because I, I think I'm in the presence today of people who are Bible-believing people. I think most of us would say the Bible is supposed to be followed. If there's a command in the Bible, we're going to follow it. But I want to help us see just for a moment how we pick and choose what we want to follow and what we choose to just say, no, that was cultural. Paul makes this statement. It's a command in the Bible, greet each other with a holy kiss. And there's some cultures around the world that do this. But if we try to implement this in the church, I don't know how many of you would choose to practice it. But it's a command in the Bible. Jesus, the one we follow in John chapter 13, Jesus says that, hey, I have set an example for you. I have washed your feet. Now you need to wash one another's feet. He says it twice. This is a command. You wash each other's feet just as I have washed your feet. Yet I think most of us would say this was cultural especially those of us with teenage boys in our home right now, we're like, oh God, please tell us. This is cultural, like we don't have to honor this today. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, sell all your possessions. Says it three different times in the Gospel of Luke. Sell your possessions. Yet I don't think all of us sell our possessions. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, and I want you just to see verse 7, because you have multiple times in the Gospels where Jesus is either talking to the 12 apostles or maybe 70 disciples when he sends them out. 
And we like to preach this and we cling to this and we believe this, to be sent out into the world to teach or preach or proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And we want to take that seriously. Yet then in most of those places, you look at verse 8 or what comes after it, and what it also tells them to do is as you go into the world to preach, you also are being sent to heal diseases, like drive out demons, raise the dead, like all these miraculous signs. And though the Bible never says the miraculous signs ended after the apostles or after scriptures came to us, we sometimes treat it that way. People around the world can look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. So what we've done for three weeks, if we've, we've hit Rewind, it's a three-week series I've called Rewind. Now, we're quick about the word rewind. It's a lot easier in the year 2023 than it was decades ago. Am I right? Just to hit rewind on something? So if you were to pull up the podcast, just you know, hypothetically speaking, the Sycamore View podcast, you're going to go listen to Preacher Josh, and I say something, and you're... You're so amazed by it that you want to go back and hear it again. So all you have to do is hit that 15-second 15 button, and it takes you back 15 seconds. All you have to do is drag, and it'll take you back to the exact spot you want it to be. But rewinding has not always been this easy, right? How many of you had CD players? Just a show of hands, CD players. You push a button, it goes to the next track, the next song. If you wanted to fast forward, you had to hold it down and you just hope you didn't get a finger cramp because then it would mess up everything, right? How many of you had VHS tapes? Right? You want to fast forward a DVD, it's not as hard. You want to fast forward a VHS, I mean, you might as well pour a cup of coffee, have a seat, it's going to take a minute. Kind of like cassette tapes, remember cassette tapes? Uh, you didn't just get to hit a button and skip seven songs. I mean, you had to hit a button where it would fast forward or rewind. And let's just, while we're on cassette tapes real quick, can we just say the suffering and trauma that has come from cassette tapes? I mean, I mean, for some of us, people are like, when did therapy start in your life? And we're like, man, it's when that tape and that cassette just went crazy. And then it just showed me, like, that's what my life is like, too. Like, you hit rewind on things. And sometimes what we do with family members, with friends, with groups of people, is we, we kind of, we just ask questions. We're like, do you remember when? And sometimes when we do those do you remember times, like do you remember when, it's stuff we, we can laugh about and stories we tell, and sometimes it's stories of pain. Do you remember when? So about 20 years ago, the church asked the leaders of this church to study three issues. And what we've done the last three weeks is just hit, hit rewind to look back on those. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on divorce, marriage, and remarriage. This was a study that the church did back in 2007. And what I talked about two weeks ago is through the Spirit of God, like we want to be a church that we hold up marriage and we fight for marriage and we pray for our marriages, yet we also want people who have been impacted by divorce to know that the grace of God is all over you. You have a place here. Last week, we hit Rewind, it's the year 2010, when we did a study and we talked about worship and instrumental worship and acapella worship. And I preached that last week. I preached on that. And basically, our statement was like, hey, we are not making this a heaven or hell issue. I'm grateful to be a part of a church or outside of Sunday morning. We experiment and we get creative and we have worship services on Sunday morning. We experience acapella in some really powerful ways. But our posture as a church is for any church around the world today who chooses to sing acapella and they're pressing into Jesus and inviting people to surrender their lives to Jesus, we are rooting for them and we are cheering for them. And any church around the world today that is worshiping with instruments, 
instruments or where revival is breaking out today with instruments, we are rooting for them and we are cheering for them. Today I want to talk about, I want to hit rewind. The 2013, 2014, 2015, when we went through a study of the role of women in public worship. And this is a, like, for any of us who've been a part of the church for over a decade, and if I were to ask, do you remember when? I think most of us would be like, oh, we remember when. We remember when. Remember that. So to do this, I want to use three chairs today. So the chair you see me in right now, I just want to call this the traditionalist view. So these are people, that, I mean, when it comes to the role of women in public worship or the role of women in leadership in the church, you have traditionalists. And I'm not calling these people legalists. They're traditionalists. They have a more traditionalist view when it comes to the role of women in public worship. They're, for them, when it comes to leadership, that they take the places in the Bible that talk about the silence of women seriously. So for them, their interpretation of Scripture and how they practice is that women don't have a leadership role in the church. And ch some churches who even may have a children's minister, they don't call them minister, it's children's coordinator, children's director. It's a traditionalist view. And I want to use the word, and I tried to find other words, but nothing really fits, all right? Just complementarian is what I want to call it. And these are people that when they study Scripture, groups of people, they study Scripture, they, they come to the belief that Scripture allows for the expansion for women to do some things, maybe most things in a worship service or in leadership. Some things are most things, that there's more things women can do than the traditionalists would allow them to do. And then you also have egalitarians. And egalitarians believe that through progression of Scripture and the way the story of God unfolds, that it's not just that women are allowed to do some things or, all, or, or, or many things, but they're, they're allowed to do all things. Anything a man can do, a woman can do. Remember the Gatorade commercial back in the 90s? Anything you can do, I can do better. Like this women's, like this, hey, women can play sports too. It's like, hey, women can do this too. And here's what I want to do just for a moment is walk you through a few places in Scripture and to help you see how each one of these groups view those texts. Because sometimes we all look at the same thing and we come to different conclusions. I have family members who would sit in all three of these chairs. We have people deeply committed as members of the Sycamore View Church who would sit in all three of these chairs. So all three chairs have people who love God, who love Scripture, who love the mission of God. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm putting it all on one slide because I want you all to see it. So all of you online right now, I know you get that small little box right around here. It may be hard for you to see, but 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. And here's what it says. In 1 Corinthians 11, so you got the same guy writing to the same people, the same audience. You have Paul who is writing to all of them. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4 and 5, it says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, and he talks about dishonoring her head. I just want you to see the pray and the prophesy part. And in 1 Corinthians 14, just a few chapters after that, in verse 34 and 35, it says this, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So I want you to see both of them. Because what we do in life, and we do this with politics, we do this with issues, we do this with theology, 
is a lot of times we have our primary lens and our secondary lens. So there's a primary lens that we see the secondary lens through. So for the traditionalists, the 1 Corinthians 14 is going to be the primary lens and the 1 Corinthians 11 is going to be the secondary lens. So for them, it's the women must be silent in the church is the primary lens. And what they would say is in 1 Corinthians 11, the praying and prophesying isn't done in public or it's not done in a public, what we would call like corporate worship assembly or what we are a part of right now. So women are to remain silent. And they may even make the argument that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul doesn't actually begin talking to the, to the worship service until verse 17, not in verse 2, which addresses praying and prophesying in public. Now, for the complementarian and the egalitarian, their approach is going to be, in 1 Corinthians 11, women are praying and prophesying in public. It's happening. You don't pray and prophesy in silence. You may pray in silence, but prophecy isn't something you do on your own. Prophecy is something that is done in public with other people. So it's happening in the church. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, the issue isn't do women pray and prophesy in public, it's what are they supposed to wear while they do. And then when it gets real tricky is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 and 34, the word woman in the Greek is hegune, which can also mean wife. I thought it was funny back when I first learned this to call my wife hegune. I just thought it would be great, like... She'll love this. It'll be a new nickname for her. Hey, Gune. It's scriptural. It's Greek. In case you didn't laugh the first time and she didn't laugh the second time. All right? So I kind of just let it, let it fall off. So context tells you. This is just me talking to you right now. My interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14. Is Paul addressing all the women or is Paul addressing wives? And the fact that Paul is telling them, you need to go home and talk to your husbands leads me to believe that Paul is addressing specific, a specific situation with some wives who are disrupting the assembly, and he's saying, go home and talk to your husbands about this. You're disrupting what's happening in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes again, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Notice the word learn. It's not so much worship in quietness or submission. It's learn in quietness and submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be silent, must be quiet. Now, let's have fun with this one for a moment, all right? Uh, my friend Scott McKnight, great theologian, great scholar, loves the church, loves baseball. Not necessarily, well, probably in that order. Loves the church, loves baseball. He points out that there are seven commands in 1 Timothy verses 8 through 15. So when he's teaching his college students, he usually has 19, 20, 21-year-olds in his class. When he's teaching them, he does this exercise where they go through all seven commands and they vote whether they think it is a command we should still honor today or not. I'm not going to have us raise our hands and vote on this, but I'm going to go through each one of them so you can see them. In 1 Timothy 8-15, through there are seven commands. And the first command is this. He says that every man, men everywhere, He's commanding them to lift their hands in prayer. I don't think we would say that we are asking everyone, every man to honor this today. And maybe there are some who would say, well, he's spiritualizing it, just in your heart being that posture. Paul was usually very specific with his language 
I think he's talking about people holding up their physical hands in prayer as a sign of surrender and submission to God. But I don't think this is something that we would ask every, every man everywhere to honor. The second command is, as those men pray, they should pray without being angry and without disputing. I think we would say, that's, pretty good. that's a pretty good command to follow. I mean, there's such thing as righteous anger that maybe you take before God, but in prayer, like you don't want to have an angry posture and you don't want to be disputing, I think we would say, that's a good command. The third command is that women should dress modestly. And I think most of us would say, yeah, we think that's a good command, but then some of us would say or ask, what, is, what do we mean by modesty? Can you wear jeans in church or not, ladies? Right? Pants or no pants? Uh, hopefully, definitely pants, but pants are... <laughs> is it okay for ankles to show? Are we just talking short skirts and cleavage? Are we talking knees, elbows, shoulders? If shoulders, how much shoulders? Like, I think we would say modesty is good, but let's define modesty. And then there's command number four, where Paul commands the women, don't wear gold no pearls, no braided hair, no expensive clothes. I think we would say, I'm not so sure we're going to follow that command, or let's put a dollar amount on it. Are we talking $50, $100? If it's a, something that was $100, yeah, we got 50% off. Is that okay in church? But I know in our space today, we got a lot of gold up in this place, right? The may, maybe this one was more cultural. Command number five is he's commanding women to dress themselves with good deeds. So no matter what you wear on your body, there need to be good deeds. I think we would all say it's a good thing for females to dress themselves in good deeds that honor God. And then you get command number six. He's commanding women to learn in quietness and submission. And then command number seven, which is he's commanding them to be quiet in church. So now look at all seven commands. And of the seven commands, how many of them do we say, well, that was cultural, and how many of them do we say, that is a command for all time? Now, what the traditionalists, I think what the traditionalists would say is, if you read 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, and come to the conclusion that women can do things in church, you're, you have to make assumptions about culture to get there. And if we're going to make assumptions, it may be better for us just to be safe. And what the complementarian and the egalitarian would say is, I think we need to be consistent with how we look at commands in a passage and claim which one is cultural and which one is not cultural. So let me throw out a few scenarios that I think may have been happening. One, you had singleness was not seen as a viable option in first century culture. I think we do better today. And if you were a single woman a church could be a great place for you to try to find a godly man. So I think especially in the city of Ephesus, you had single women who were using the church and dressing up and putting perfume on, coming into the church, trying to find a partner that they could live with for the rest of their lives. Maybe that was happening. I think a better option is you had a lot of uneducated women because it was a culture where women didn't have a lot of places where they could be educated. And I think you have some uneducated women who are going into churches and they're using the worship space to try to gain knowledge. And the way they were trying to gain knowledge, where they were asking questions about everything. It, was, it wasn't that people didn't want them to ask questions, but there was a place for questions and it was disrupting the body. 
And we also know that in the first century culture that there was a group known as the New Roman Women who had this feminist movement. And it wasn't just we want a seat at the table. It was that we need all the seats at the table and men need to be dismantled from the table. It was a complete reversal. And when you look at the city of Corinth where Paul was writing to the churches of Corinth in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy where Paul is writing to churches in Ephesus, two large cities where both of them had this movement of the new Roman women, maybe Paul was writing about that. Now, Paul also refers to Genesis chapter 3 a couple of times to make points. And in Genesis 3 verse 16 is where Paul, or not Paul, it's where the Bible says this. This was right after Adam and Eve had sinned. These were curses that were being handed down. These are punishments. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I think the traditionalists would say that that's a precedent. It's like a direction. Unfortunately, it's just a direction that has been set because of the curse. Where there's superiority and inferiority, and maybe that's too strong of a language. I don't know if everybody, every traditionalist would say that. But where when it comes to structures that have been set up by God, that men have authority over women. And I think what complementarians and definitely what egalitarians would say is this is more of a prediction than it was of this is the way things will always be. It's more a prediction that because of the fall, there's going to be a fight for power and control where women are going to be seeking to control men and men are going to be seeking to control women. And I think what... Do you see this as a desire that women are going to have for men forever as if it was designed by God or that as the story of Scripture unfolds and through redemption in Jesus that the desire will be redeemed to be a part of mutual love? So Jewish men, there was a saying they had in first century culture that they would pray this benediction three times a day and I'm not encouraging any of you to go home and pray this yourself, all right? But three times a day, they would pray something like this. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a peasant or did not make me poor. And praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Now, I don't think Jewish men were praying these prayers being mean-spirited. I think it was them knowing that they, when it came to the temple and came to following Torah, there were some commands that only them could follow because of laws about who's clean and who's unclean and things like that. But in the first century culture, you also had Greeks, and I'm not talking about like Greek Christians, just Greek culture who had a statement that went like this. The Greek man was taught, be grateful that I was born a human being and not a beast, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. Will you go back to the slide of the Jewish man real quick? So I want you to see what Jewish men prayed as benedictions three times a day. It was a thanking God they're not a Gentile, a peasant, they're not a woman. And go to the next slide. And the Greek prayed, or they're not so much prayed, they, just, they taught and they were grateful. Thank you for making me a human being, not a beast, a man, not a woman, a Greek, and not a barbarian. And now, this isn't on the screen, but now listen to Galatians 3, 27 and 28 which says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. 
no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not just like writing something and grabbing these names like out of clouds. He's responding directly to things that men had been reciting and that women heard in both Jewish culture and Greek culture. And it's like Paul is writing to say, Jesus has changed it all. Um, Scott McKnight wrote a book about a decade ago. And if you go to this next slide, one thing he does is it, you know, WJD, right? Uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And when he does, he has a chapter where he talks about the WDWD, which is what women did do, and WKSP. Those women keep silent passages. And one thing that I think is brilliant about the chapter he does is most of us, when we're in churches or when we're in conversations with other people, and the issue comes up about women in public worship, so many times we go to the places that silence women, not the places where women are used by God throughout Scripture. We open 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 and try to process it. In the Old Testament, let me just throw a few out to you. Miriam was known and called throughout the Old Testament a prophet. She was the first worship leader in the Bible, Exodus 15. She was known as a leader. Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and 5 was the, it was like you had mixed the president, the pope, and an army general all into one. You have Huldah in 2 Kings, who she was a prophet, called a prophet, who prophesied at the exact same time as Jeremiah, as Zephaniah, as Nahum, and Habakkuk. Yet when it came to them asking somebody to come prophesy to the people, they didn't ask the four men who had names of the Bible after them. They asked a woman named Huldah. In the Old Testament, you have examples of women who were used by God to teach and instruct and to invite people back to repentance. In the New Testament, there are a lot of names, and maybe you don't know some of these. You know Mary, the mother of Jesus. But you may have to make some assumptions, but the fact that she is, like we know about encounters she had with angels, and we know about the time she had with Elizabeth, and we know about the song she wrote in Luke chapter 1 that just flowed from her. At some point, Mary was one who instructed and taught Jesus and maybe other people. Junia is one that has thrown scholars, uh, for, I mean, all, for years, because in Romans chapter 16, she is called one who is great among the apostles. You have Priscilla, whose name is mentioned multiple times throughout the Bible, with her husband, and in all occasions except two, she is the first name mentioned, not the second. And she is seen as somebody who was a teacher, instructor, a mentor. She was coaching up church planners and, and leaders to help send them out. And then you also have Phoebe, who's described as a deacon. Some people argue that what she was doing was she was Paul's courier. She would take his letters to churches, and if you had that responsibility, you didn't just deliver them, you also shared the instruction that came behind them. So for the traditionalists, what they would say, and it's because of their love for Scripture, but they would say that the examples of women doing things throughout the Bible are the exceptions, not the norm. I don't think they would deny that 
God used women to prophesy and teach and instruct and serve and lead. It said it was the exception, not the norm. And what you have from complementarians is there's progression throughout the Bible. And that progression is the story of God unfolds and the Holy Spirit is anointing men and women that there are many things that women can do in the church and in leadership. But the complementarians would say that they do not see examples of a woman being an elder in the church or the primary evangelist. And you would have egalitarians who would honor and see that all of Scripture, it is progression and the story of God is unfolding and that progression continues anointing all people to lead each other closer to God. So let's talk about Sycamore View just for a moment. 2013, after the church had asked the elders of this church to study the role of women in public worship, in 2013, there was a group of leaders and a couple of ministers who began that study. In 2014, they went public with it. But this whole thing about women doing things in church, it didn't like start in 2013 or 2014. For over a decade, like we had a youth ministry where there were girls who were being trained by women and, and students who were being taught by women and led in prayer by women. And there, there were some asking the question, like, can, so, so girls can do things up until the age of 18 and then they can't anymore. There were times in our worship services, even before 2013 and 2014, where testimonies were being given by men and women, when there may be an occasional special song, when there were announcements that children's ministers or women would make about things going on in the church. So there were some things that were already happening. And our leaders met for about 18 months where they prayed and fasted and studied Scripture and discerned with God. And here was a statement that was made in June of 2014 that we have concluded, and this is part of a much bigger document, that we have concluded that before God there is a calling and clear examples from Scripture to move in the direction of expanding women's roles in public worship. And we believe it to be in keeping with what would have been experienced in the early church as well. We desire to join in the work of the Holy Spirit to include, embrace, and allow, and affirm all spiritual gifts. And I'm grateful for elders who take studies like that seriously. And for those of us who've been a part of this church for over a decade, we see the blessing and we remember the pain. We see the blessing and we remember the pain. We've seen the blessing of being led in prayer by women for almost a decade in this church and hearing testimonies and scripture being read and occasional occasionally co-preaching and singing and being led in worship. We see the blessing. We remember the pain. Last year, 56% of the prayers that were prayed in this church were from women. And we remember the pain because it was a season that there, there were some people who chose to no longer journey with us. And it was a season that a leadership philosophy developed in my life that went like this. If you're in leadership, arrows are going to come at you. It's just part of leadership. You just got to know when to dodge them, when to take them, and when to pull an arrow out of your body and throw it back at somebody. All right, now, this is, this is why I write books on faith and Christian life, not on leadership, all right? And it's why I still have some maturing in my life to do. 
I'm grateful to be a part of Churches of Christ who honor and practice autonomy, meaning that as a local body here at Sycamore View, we don't answer to some authority in Nashville or Searcy or Henderson or Abilene or Malibu. Though if we want to set something up in Malibu, I, I, I'm all for it, all right? I'm good. I'll be good with that. I'm down with that, all right? We don't answer to any higher authority. We believe that God is going to work through the leaders of this church to help us discern our present and our future. I love that. And I'm grateful for bold leadership. I think the best reason for churches to make changes in their church is because they sought after the face of God and they believe God has called them to do it. Not making decisions based on what other people are going to think of us. It's one of the reasons Casey and I wanted to come to this church back in 2008 is because we had elders who weren't afraid to pray and to fast and to seek after the heart of God. So I thank the elders of this church for their boldness, for not being afraid to take risks. And I'm grateful for some of the women, especially women who were in leadership around that time. I'm grateful for Elizabeth, even though she wasn't on staff with us in 2014, for Elizabeth Patterson and the voice she was throughout that process. I'm grateful for Danielle, who was our children's minister at the time. And I am especially grateful for Jenna King. Uh, Jenna was in a lot of the intimate conversations with us. Her wisdom, her voice, it was so needed. And I hope that God... Uh, has protected how Jenna reflects back on that time, and I'm grateful for all the ways God is still using her. There's a quote I came across about the role of women, and this is somebody, a church leader, reflecting on the role of women and how this happens throughout the world. And, and here's what this person says. What this means for Christianity in traditional Asian or Muslim contexts is that too much too fast could endanger the church's witness and credibility. But in much of the Western world, too little, too slow could neutralize the church's impact in society just as effectively. And you read a statement like that and you're like, man, welcome to leadership in the 21st century in the church and in the world. And that's what we're constantly discerning with God, right? Like, we don't want to ask God to move at our pace. We want to move at God pay, God's pace. So I hope that we will always be a church that first and foremost has our mission and our vision set on the heart of God. Our mission of this church is not to be a church that is only known as a place that is full of grace for people who have been impacted by divorce. And the mission of our church is not that we will be the church known for when it comes to worship styles, that we're not making these into heaven or hell issues. And I hope that we'll never be a church that we're like, we want our mission to be. We're the church that allows or empowers women to do things. Our mission is to help people see Jesus. That's it. It's to help people see Jesus. And I think we have learned the importance of having the voices of women to help us do that. So where there may be voices or experiences that are caged like blue parakeets, may we be a church that helps set them free for the glory of God. I've been working on this sermon for months. 
I've written four different transitions into communion based on this sermon. One of those was Galatians 3.28, that at the table, gender doesn't matter. But I think we all get that. Like, I don't think any of us have a view of women, like, either being second-class citizens when it comes to salvation, to the table, to the kingdom of God, all are invited. And I've thought about the power of communion, sending people out to be used by God, but I, I think we're a church that does that really well. Like, we want to empower men and women to experience Jesus and to touch the bread and the cup every week so that we know we're being sent out to serve because we have been empowered by God. But what I kept coming back to the last few days is we have early church documents in the first 200 years of Christianity where communion would come after the sermon or after the teaching. And, and I don't think they were so much caught up in like worship orders. I think theologically it was when we are trying to process doctrine and theology and what it means to embrace and live out Christianity in the world, we're going to do this, but then we're going to end with a table which reminds us that no matter what we have just processed, at the table we are reminded of what Jesus has done, and at the table we're reminded no matter what issue we go through in life, we're together as a church, this is the table that reminds us we are unified. We're together in Jesus, a part of the same family, sent by God. So as we go to the bread and the cup today, can we remember and celebrate that? Because of Jesus, there is unity and peace and courage. And may we follow Jesus in those ways. Rhett, we have two elders, and next week we'll have more prayer leaders around the room, but I know Matt Kask is going to be up front to receive you for prayer. I'll be over here to the left, and I know we have one elder in the back, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who that is. If there's anything we can do for you, we're here for you. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? For God, I pray for that person who may be in this room today or a part of this worship experience, and they were coming to church today, and they're just hungry and desperate for you. And here we are talking about a study we did a decade ago, and I hope that by the way they have experienced us worshiping today and even being a church that's not afraid to work through some things, that, that somehow they will leave this worship experience having received something that points them to how good you are. And God, my prayer as we encounter the table today, as we look back, we look in the past, we remember what Jesus has done. God, as we work and move into the future, we're not asking for you to go into our future. It's the God we want to have the faith to go with you into your future. We offer all this up in the name of Jesus. Amen.